This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, former buff, NFL linebacker, and host at 104.3 The Fan, Chad Brown. When teams make this reflexive mistake of, well, we had an old guy, therefore we need a young guy. We had an offensive guy, therefore we need a defensive guy. And that kind of cognitive bias, it almost hurts my brain because it makes no sense. Who should the Broncos hire? you got to find the right guy. Also, Chad on Coach Prime coming to Boulder. He has built a brand that is actually bigger than the school that he's coaching at. So I give him a massive tip of the cap. Drew catches you up on Major League Baseball free agency moves. And we'll get you ready for Wild Card Weekend in the NFL. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome in. It is show number 184. We're into January. And I don't know if um, all of you are the same as me. Hopefully you're not, right? You don't want some of my traits. Uh, But... When you're filling out checks at the turn of the new year, do you always write the previous year down and then you have to scribble it out or or remind yourself, oh, that's right, it's now 2023. Um, I was doing that just the other day. But it's amazing, man. Time flying by. I always say this when people uh, come up to me and ask me about spring training and baseball and the Rocky season. Uh, When it hits January 1st, it seems like, there are no longer 24 hours in a day and everything goes 10,000 miles an hour towards spring training, through spring training and opening day. And, and the next time I'll be thinking about this, uh, I'll be talking to all of you from uh, San Diego as the Rockies embark on their 31st season. Not a ton of activity so far for the Rockies. You know, Pierce Johnson was signed. A couple of other, um, you know, arms were signed. Uh, Brent Suter comes, left-hander from Milwaukee, but but nothing real sexy. They're going to rely heavily um, this year on young guys and uh, the transition of some young, well-thought-of prospects. And we'll get into that more as we get closer to spring training. But, you know, this year, right now, it's going to be all about Ezekiel Tovar. Uh, ultimately, hopefully, guys like Zach Veen, um, maybe the continued uh, development uh, of Sean Bouchard, of Michael Tolia. And hopefully that represents individual success and ultimately naturally collective success. But we'll get more into that in a little bit. Do want to mention a couple other baseball notes that uh, came up this week. So it appears that Carlos Correa finally has a team. And it's a team he played for last year. What an odyssey that was for Correa. Initially, what was it, a 13-year, $350 million deal with San Francisco. He was going to be a giant. He was going to play in the NL West. And then the press conference got canceled. And and next thing you know, he's going to be a New York Met. Not quite as much money. Uh, one year less, around $300 million or so, $320, whatever it was. And then that falls through, both on medicals. And listen, the Giants are a very well-run organization. The Mets are a very well-run organization. Both red-flagged, evidently, an ankle injury that he had surgery on when he was in the minor leagues. But I'm assuming that the medical experts feel like at some point in time, this thing's going to break or it's not going to be good for him. And that's why both teams were reluctant to have him under contract for that length of time. Ultimately, he signs back with Minnesota, six years, $200 million. I guess their um, additional years, options, they could bring it to 270 But you may recall Minnesota initially offered him, I believe it was 10 years and $285 million. So he's going to make less than that, and he's returning to a place that I don't know if he that, – that wasn't his first choice, clearly, because he turned down staying there. And you wonder how it plays out. I mean, Minnesota is a very good franchise, uh, kind of a, a almost a model mid-market franchise for the success they've had. The Mets re-offered them. I think it was like half the deal. So it wasn't as much money anymore as Minnesota. But he was going to be in the New York market. Um, probably year in and year out is going to have a better chance of playing in the postseason. Kind of a fascinating odyssey, as I said uh, uh, a few minutes ago. But uh, Carlos Correa, back where he started, what was it, like six weeks ago? So if you bought a 
Korea Giant jersey or T-shirt or a Mets Korea jersey or T-shirt. Hold on to it. It'll be worth something on uh, eBay at some point in time. The other story that came out of baseball that uh, was prominent is the former Rocky, Trevor Story, uh, is going to have what was described as modified Tommy John surgery, not complete Tommy John surgery, but he has to have elbow surgery. And we are in mid-January. He is going to be at anywhere from four to six months, which by and large is going to erase the majority, you would think, of the 2023 season. And you know the Red Sox, if you follow them, lost Xander Bogarts to free agency. Rockies will see a lot of Bogarts as he's now in the NL West with San Diego. And Trevor Story was going to move back to his original spot, shortstop from second base. Think back to his last year with the Rockies. There were throwing issues, even his last two years. And, you know, Trevor, who's such a prideful guy, said, yeah, you know, dealing with a little bit of elbow, you know, stress, but everything's okay. Um, I had asked him that. And, you know, he got through last year playing on the right side with Boston. I saw a report where the hardest throw he had all year across the diamond was under 80 miles an hour. Folks, you can go down and watch, you know, a multitude of 5A 4A high school baseball games, and they're going to be guys, particularly on the left side of the infield, who are going to throw the ball across the diamond harder than 80 miles an hour. So clearly something was not right and has not been right with Story's elbow for a long time. And finally, he's going to relinquish himself to to surgery. And he's going to be lost to the Red Sox for the majority of 2023. And... Um, now the Red Sox, they're going to have to bring Kike Hernandez in from the outfield, the former Dodger, to play shortstop, which he's capable of doing. But uh, the Red Sox, Red Sox are hurting a little bit. So I thought that story um, was interesting. I wish Trevor uh, all the best in his recovery from that surgery, which um, reports are already uh, took place. On to football. Last week, I was bragging about how great the semifinal games were in the college football playoff. I mean, how can you not be entertained by them? They were extraordinary football games. You know, Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, Michigan, both coming down to really to the last snap of the game. Um, High volume offenses, big plays, defensive touchdowns. They had everything. I mean, absolutely everything. And... Then we had the national championship game. <laughs> and I guess uh, the slippers had to come off of TCU. 65-7, to Georgia. Uh, they played their best game of the year, clearly. They looked phenomenal. TCU, unfortunately, did not look like they belonged not only in the same stadium, they didn't belong in the same state as uh, Georgia. 65-7 in a game Don't be deceived by the score. It was not that close. Um, Georgia repeats. So you got to make Georgia the team to beat again uh, next year. One of the incredible things about Georgia, they had 15 guys drafted last year off their initial national championship team. And they had, I believe, 12 freshmen or sophomores starting in the national championship game on Monday. Most teams, most teams aren't going to have anywhere close to 15 guys drafted. That's number one. Number two, if you have 15 guys drafted, there's going to be some sort of downward turn. You know, maybe not a precipitous one. You're talking about Georgia. You're talking about the elite programs in college football, Alabama, these, these schools that get Ohio State, get, you know, a multitude of players every year drafted. But the fact that they can turn around and still play better than everyone else in the country after losing 15 to the NFL. That's uh, that's great stuff. It's great player development led by Kirby Smart. So hats off uh, to George and hats off to TCU. Fabulous run. I also believe that we will see down the road that it's less likely that there, there's that lopsided a game in the national championship because the Cinderella's, and I'm all about the 12-team playoff, but the Cinderella's, they may win a game, maybe even two, 
but they're probably going to get knocked off along the way, and the championship game will be the heavyweights. And there's only like five or six of them that recruit at that level. Maybe you can expand it to eight. But you know those schools. We've talked about it so many times. You follow sports. That's where you're listening to this podcast. You know, it's it's Ohio State. It's Alabama. It's Georgia. You know, you can throw Michigan in there. Maybe LSU. Uh, USC can recruit at a super high level. Texas, which has been down for a long time, can recruit at a super high level. But those are the schools we're talking about. And even in a 12-team playoff, which I'm really excited about because it's about entertainment and you you can't do better than those two semifinal games. So you'll hopefully get more of that. You will get a game that gets lopsided in there, but it's less likely to happen in the national championship game. Those are my thoughts as we conclude uh, what was a, a fun and great college football season. On to the NFL. I love when sports gives us goosebump moments unbelievable moments, remarkable moments, holy shit moments. Everyone in sports, everyone I think in the country and and, and so many people worldwide were following the DeMar Hamlin story. Near tragedy, resuscitated on the field as we all know, and he has made an extraordinary recovery. Um, It's now nine days later as we tape this and um, earlier today, He was discharged from Buffalo Hospital. He'll continue his rehabilitation. It was set at home and with the bills. And, um, you know, he's doing, by all reports, phenomenally well, which which is just tremendous. Sunday, I think like many of you, you want to see that Bills game. First of all, the Bills are really entertaining to watch to begin with. Josh Allen, I'm partial to because he played at Wyoming, did a number of his games in college. Really like Josh Allen, like watching him play. Bills are fun. Bills are good. But you also want to watch now, how how would they react? How would they play in the aftermath of what had occurred a week earlier on Monday night? in the Buffalo-Cincinnati game when DeMar Hamlin collapsed. And Hines returns the opening kickoff for a touchdown. I'm watching it live. And I'm like, no way. Are you kidding me? That was all everybody's reaction, right? Divine intervention. I mean, how, how priceless was the reaction of Josh Allen on the sideline? I mean, his mouth was agape. And then Hines did it for good measure later on in the game. That was one of the all-time, for me, goosebump moments in watching sports for many, 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 many years. And most importantly, DeMar Hamlin, as I said, doing much better. Super Bowl predictions. You know what? On the back end, I'm going to get to that. Yeah, I got to make it before the tournament starts. I'm going to make it uh, on the back end. You know what? I'm really excited about uh, chatting with Chad Brown today. Chad was on, uh, it's probably been a couple years uh, since Chad's been on. Used to work with him at the fan periodically. I remember certainly uh, covering him when he played at the University of Colorado. He had a great career in Boulder, originally from Pasadena. John Muir High School in Pasadena, California. And he had, I, I believe, a 15-year NFL career. So many great years when he was an All-Pro with Pittsburgh. He had close to 80 sacks in his uh, career. I mean, you played 15 years in the NFL. Crazy, especially on the, on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but Chad has made his mark uh, in the media. Chad's made his mark in a lot of different areas. He, he's he's a fascinating guy. He's an exceptionally bright guy. And I always enjoy talking to him, whether it's about sports or other topics. And uh, so I thought uh, it would be a perfect time to sit down with Chad, given everything that's transpiring uh, with the Broncos, with his alma mater, the University of Colorado, and football in general. So uh, enjoy our, our chat. It's uh, the former Buffalo American, the former All-Pro in the NFL and a guy that you get to hear on a regular basis on the radio, on television, uh, Chad Brown. So Chad, before we get into um, football and and all of the particulars and so many storylines going on, I'd be remiss if I didn't begin with um, 
how you are balancing your media commitments and your exotic pet business commitments. I mean, that's that, you know, a lot of people have that uh, th- those dual roles. So I'm sure you have a lot of people you can bounce things off of from experience, right? <laughs> Uh, I don't know too many people who uh talking to cameras and microphones uh, about sports and then ship uh, exotic animals uh, as their main day job. But So not a lot of folks I can reference for advice. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, it's a balancing act, and it's a, a, a juggle for sure. I got the, the daily radio show, but, you know, that uh, show is over at 11, so as soon as the show is over, I head over here to the office and, I've got a tremendous staff, which is great, because they, they allow me to do the things that I do from a media perspective. And then most weekends, uh, I'm leaving on Friday, headed to whatever city I'm going to be calling a game at. So uh, I do miss some things here at the office, but with technology, um, I can attend meetings remotely, obviously. Um, and so uh, I try my best to keep up on, on both sides as best as I can. Uh, but it takes some understanding from both worlds to bend things a little bit to accommodate for my very full, busy, uh, tricky schedule. But, uh, you know, so far, so good. You know, this is probably my sixth year of being able to juggle both of those. And uh, fortunately, I've got the arrow pointed up for both of those. I continue to get more and more broadcast opportunities, so apparently people – like what I bring there, and then my shipping company, we continue to grow and expand. Um, so my my absence um, is not to hurt the company too terribly. Good deal. Well, listen, I'm going to circle back before we close the door on uh, on our little get-together here. I am going to circle back because, I, you know, like most people, um, you love hearing stories about exotic reptiles, though you don't want to partake personally so I can live vicariously through all of your adventures and I'm going to circle back but first let's get to football um one of the number one topics that I that I know you discuss now uh on on almost a daily basis you know who will be the head coach of the Broncos and and rather than simplify it I want to ask you a, a a more general question from your long time experience of playing um, and, and and also being in industry, also managing, which you've done, as we talked about, your various reptile businesses through the years. Is it more important to have a great leader of, in this case, men in football or somebody that specializes on one side of the ball and may be equipped to be a head coach? Uh, I'm going to always go towards the, the leadership aspect. Uh, in the end, there are lots of ways to score touchdowns. There's lots of offensive schemes that have been proven through time to be successful in football. There are lots of defensive schemes that have been proven to be successful. 3-4, 4-3, offensively West Coast, power schemes. I mean, there's, just, there's so many possibilities of being able to either move the ball or stop the ball that your schematic expertise, in my opinion, falls secondary to your ability to get everybody, not just the guys in the locker room, uh, not just the coaches in the coaches' rooms, but to get the entire organization thinking the same thoughts and moving in the same direction. So uh, that ability, I think, is far rarer than somebody who can get up on a whiteboard and move the X's and O's around in an advantageous way. And so for me to be coached by Bill Cowher, great leader of men. To me to be coached by Bill Belichick, great leader of men. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, CU and, and Coach Prime during this call, but obviously I was at University of Colorado with Bill McCartney, one of the greatest, le- greatest leaders of men I've ever seen in my entire life. So those guys and their impact on me showed me that it's not all on the Jimmys and Joes in the room nor on the X's and O's on a piece of paper on a board. It's about the collective belief in getting everybody marching in the same direction and everybody as invested and as bought in as they can possibly be at every single moment. I have always argued that, and I've been influenced by you know friends who played a long time like yourself when I've posed that question. I think we so frequently get caught up in 
you know, oh, this team is deficient offensively, therefore you need somebody that was an O coordinator per se. And you think of some of the great coaches of all time. You mentioned McCartney, you know, huge here. I, I don't remember Bill wearing a headset. Tom Landry didn't have a headset on. Uh, there, there are a lot of I think of Mike Tomlin with your former team, you know, who, who followed obviously Bill Cower, phenomenal coach, and yet you don't think of him as uh, on one side of the ball per se. Well, you know, the Mike Tomlin thing is interesting because he was on the defensive side of the ball, and he worked under Tony Dungy, who has the, the Tampa two defensive system. Mike Tomlin becomes the head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, not only does he not just, you know, plant himself firmly on one side of the ball, he doesn't even run the defensive scheme that he was most familiar with from his last stop in Tampa. He runs the Steelers' three-four style defense that they've run for almost for over 35, 40 years now. So uh, that kind of ability to recognize that it's not about again my schematic skill set. It's about my leadership skill set. The head coach job is to coach the coaches, to manage the game, and, again, build that consensus and have that leadership ability. So um, when teams make this reflexive mistake of, well, we had an old guy, therefore we need a young guy. We had an offensive guy, therefore we need a defensive guy. It's just that kind of thinking, that kind of cognitive bias it almost hurts my brain because it makes no sense. Each coach has his own separate chance for success. And once you start to eliminate certain coaches because of their age or their background or lack of background or what side of the ball they're on, you're limiting your own organizational best chances for success when you start to do that. So, uh, you know, I wish I could, you know, have a chance to talk to these owners who obviously – most of them have gotten very far in life with their business acumen, and then they go to hire a coach, and they fall into these these cycles of cognitive just dissonance where they don't see the situation and lay of the land as it should be. Um, here in Denver, we you know followed up Vic Fangio, an older guy, with you know didn't per se portray himself as a high energy guy, with Nathaniel Hackett, young guy, super high energy. Neither one was the right guy to be the leader of the team. You can't ping pong between, uh, you know, uh, skill sets. You just got to find the right coach. Once you start to look specifically for something, you're going to eliminate folks that may open your eyes to the actual leadership skill sets they may have. Hey, given your synopsis of the situation, you've broken it down now probably ad nauseum for, for a number of days. You know, we, we have Brian Dayball De, De, De with the Giants, a team I followed growing up, who's, who's clearly done a phenomenal job because the, the Giants, I'm sure you probably had him at one point in the last, if not this year, in the last couple of years, they were a disaster. He, he's got him in the playoffs. Kevin O'Connell's done a really good job seemingly in, uh, with the Vikings. Two first-year coaches. So, yes, there's going to be a new breed, uh, or, or excuse me, a new wave of coaches, whether it's just this year or five years from now, we're talking about. But given the Broncos' situation specifically and the fact that they've had a dearth of wins over the last three head coaches who were all first-timers, some were longer in the tooth than others, and that's a reference, obviously, to Vic Fangio, even having said what you said, is it almost imperative that now the Broncos hire somebody who may have all the qualities you suggest, but also has been a head coach prior? Uh, I can see that kind of thinking. And where I join that line of thinking is, I think one of the more difficult skills of a head coach is trying to come in and build a culture. And I think the more experienced you are at that, you know, the, the, the easier and maybe the quicker you can begin to get those, those pillars and foundations of your culture installed. So when you are a first-time head coach, um, I, I think the, the number of people asking you questions, the number of things you have to do can be overwhelming. Um, you know, Vance Joseph, I think a week or two into 
his tenure as a Broncos head coach was like, I had no idea that it was going to be this much media, this many media responsibilities. And uh, Vic Fangio talked about, I didn't know I was going to have to figure out what pictures went on the wall in the facility. So they're pulled in a million different directions. And I think if you're not an experienced guy, you can literally be pulled in all those directions and then get pulled away from one of the most important tasks that you have to do, which is to establish a culture. So for this Broncos organization, which has been one of the most winningest organizations in all of not just professional football, but in all of professional sports, the winning culture has been lost. The winning ways have been lost. So an experienced coach who can come in who is well-versed in every year reestablishing and building upon that culture uh, I can see why folks are, are leaning in that direction. Chad, you have a guy in mind. Do you have a, you know, on a wish list? Do you have a, th- this guy would really, you know, float my boat? I don't. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I, I think I, I'm just, I'm a little bit more uh, open th- th- than some folks because, yeah, I don't have a, a dog in the fight between old coach, young coach, experienced coach, new coach. Uh, offensive guy, defensive guy, coordinator experience, only position coach experience, college guy or pro guy. You gotta find the right guy. The Los Angeles Rams recognized that Sean McVay was young and they thought this is the right guy. He may, this hire may be a year early before he's actually truly ready, but we don't want to miss out on the right guy. And Sean McVay has brought, you know, the Los Angeles Rams a Lombardi trophy. Um, the Pittsburgh Steelers had a bunch of far more experienced coaches interview at, in, the, in the hiring cycle where they brought in Mike Tomlin. But Mike Tomlin came in and blew them away. Therefore, he became the right guy. The Rooney family did not have some preconceived notions that this coach had to fit in. Uh, they were open enough to look at Russ Grimm, an NFL Hall of Fame player, a guy who had coached for the last 20 years, and then look at Mike Thomas, who played at William and Mary, and was had never even been a coordinator before. So, uh, but they recognized they thought Mike Tomlin was the right guy, and now for 16 seasons in a row, he has yet to have a losing record. So that's why I'm far more pragmatic than than just trying to find somebody who fits my my, my narrow boundaries of, of what I'm looking for, as opposed to opening my eyes and my vision and trying to find who is the right guy for the job. Yeah, and by the way, and I I know this hits home for you, and I've always admired the Rooney family and the Steelers from afar, despite being a giant, lifelong Giant fan. Mike Tomlin's record of 16 straight years without ever having a losing season is ridiculous. I mean, that is is phenomenal, but that's a a conversation for a different day. I want to ask you really quickly, do players, Chad, put the helmet back on? Do players really give a shit whether the the quarterback has an office upstairs and maybe a couple extra spots in the parking lot and, and seems to get preferential treatment? Do, do players care about that? They do. They do. We, 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 the players recognize there's obviously a hierarchy in the locker room, not only from a from a pay structure, but also from an experience structure, from a a, a, a skill set. All pro versus Pro Bowl versus potential Hall of Fame versus guy who's just trying to hold on and maintain his roster spot for one more week. There's all those various hierarchies, but at the same time, we are all in this together. And when you get to bring people on the road, and I don't think you get to bring people on the road, when you get seven parking spots and I only get one, when, you know, uh, you walk into the training room, and you've got your own, you know, not only do you have your own trainer who's employed by this team, but you have a trainer that's employed by you who gets to be in a team facility. How come I can't bring my guru in or my massage guy into a team facility? So once things start to feel unfair and un- unequal, that's when you start getting pushed back in the locker room. Um, so this whole Russell Wilson conversation about the entourage and all this that comes with Russell Wilson I think in the end it is a, a, a negative for the rest of the locker room with the Broncos. While it may be beneficial in some ways for Russell Wilson, although they didn't play very well this year, um, the, the, the negative would be big enough for me if I were to become the head coach of the Broncos, one of my first things would be to sit down with Russell Wilson and explain 
we all got to be the same here. We all got to be the same. And, yes, you can use that meeting room as your office, and, you know, we can give your trainer access once the work day is done, but I can't have your people in the building when it's a work when it's, when it's work time for everyone else. It sends the wrong message, and it creates a separate category for you when we're all supposed to be in this together. Interesting. Very interesting uh, to hear you say that. Now, with Russell Wilson, what's your take? I mean, he may not be, you know, a top three, top five quarterback ever again, top seven, wherever he fell. And he clearly had a great decade in Seattle. Can the Broncos, in your estimation, right coaching, right the uh, roster of the other 52 guys, if you will, can, can you win a championship still with Russell Wilson? Um, with what you've seen at times this year, given the fact that we all, you know, watched a, a guy have a down season? Well, the last couple of weeks showed some promise. Um, but that promise was based upon Russell Wilson not being the centerpiece of the offense. And you talk to sports writers and former teammates of his in Seattle, there was always his desire to be the centerpiece. Uh, this year, Coach Hackett, you know, literally became a cheerleader in the press conference where Russell Wilson was introduced to the public as a new quarterback for the Broncos. And it's all about Russ, and we're going to do all these things to make Russ successful. And I think it was too much for a player who doesn't possess the same skill set that he had before, and maybe some of the deficiencies in the skill set in Seattle were covered up by some of the ways that they structured things in Seattle where they really truly never let just let Russ cook kind of thing as the saying goes. So these last couple games this season, where they ran the ball well. You know, uh, Latavius Murray had over 100 yards in the last game of the season against the Chargers. The backup running back had almost 50. Uh, I think Jerry Judy had almost 40 yards. So almost 200 yards of rushing. You view that as an offense, now the play-action pass is open. Therefore, those deep balls to Jerry Judy become more probable. Um, when you do that, your defense gets a chance to rest, and they can keep the, the other opponent's score low. Those kinds of things where you win the, te- win the game as a team as opposed to just having your quarterback throw the ball over the yard 45 different times, that's going to have to be the structure for Russell Wilson to be successful. Um, I don't think anybody can say that this is a guy who has not lost a step. I would, I would go as far as a step and a half, maybe even two steps, uh, from a scrambling, buying time in the pocket skill set. We've seen a regression in some of his footwork. As well, one of the more better footwork guys in the league. Uh, this year's footwork was, was particularly poor. Um, so I think there's a possibility of winning a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson. He's not so awful that you can't, uh, but it has to be based on the team, which is going to mean a run game. That's going to have to be strong, and they're going to have to be strong on defense as well. More with Drew and Chad Brown right after this. Hey, got a Boyer's cup of coffee in front of me right now. I love Boyer's coffee. Just got a new shipment to the house. It arrived two days ago. And they have a plethora of great flavors. They have uh, other product as well online. When you go to boyerscoffee.com, uh, there's always some sort of promotion going on, some way that you can uh, you know, save dollars as well. And it's rich and smooth and, and terrific coffee. And as I've told you many times, uh, a multitude of flavors for you at your disposal. I love getting it delivered to the house. Um, I'm a K-Cup guy, and you order online, a couple clicks, and within a couple of days, it is at your door. Or you can find it in your local grocer as well. They've been brewing some of the best coffee in the world right here in Colorado since 1965. Boyer's Coffee. Boyer'sCoffee.com. Check it out. Steel products, they are the best, the absolute best for improving your yard, for getting things done around the house. So many different products. Go to SteelUSA.com and start shopping now. That's S-T-I-H-L. So many different products at so many different levels. You know, not everybody needs a, a chainsaw that can take down a redwood forest. Uh, sometimes you need a more manageable 
chainsaw, things around the house, or, or maybe you have, uh, you know, property that you're trying to uh, spruce up or clear some land. They have the right product, the right tool for you, no matter what your project is. Love my steel tools. I have a garage full of them. S-T-I-H-L. Go shopping at Steel USA. Do it today. Treat yourself for the new year. Again, it's Steel USA or SteelDealers.com, and they have more than 10,000 dealers around the country. S-T-I-H-L. Steel Dealers, SteelUSA.com. Now back to Drew Goodman and Chad Brown. I want to ask you about, uh, and you knew this was coming, one of your contemporaries from your playing days. Deion Sanders is an interesting phenomenon for me in that recruiting 16-, 17-, 18-year-old kids for a guy, he has this magnetism, yet they never saw him play other than highlights. And and to me, it's crazy that he it's crazy good that he's so popular with young people who happen to play football at a high level um yet they really you know the, the dads and the moms they saw him play but the kids different are you or didn't are, are you blown away by kind of the the, the prime time the, the dion uh, phenomenon if you will um i i i'm blown away because he has you don't have the success that he's had without being a smart guy. And part of being a smart person, I think, is uh, understanding yourself but also understand how others view you. So he's, he's talked about this. When he goes on the recruiting trail, there's prime time, the old Dion, prime time, that's who the parents know. That's who the parents grew up watching, you know, win football games or play baseball. That's prime time. Now he's Coach Prime, and Coach Prime is the cool coach who dances in the meeting rooms and dances on the sidelines, never repeats a game day outfit, always has a new look for every single game, wears a chain on the sideline. What coach have you seen wear a chain on the sideline? Uh, you know, it doesn't say Colorado Buffaloes. It doesn't say Buffs. It doesn't say Colorado on those sweatshirts they're selling. Uh, on the CU Athletic Store, it says Prime or Coach Prime. He has built a brand that is actually bigger than the school that he's coaching at. Um, so I give him a, a massive tip of the cap because at 52 years old, what he's doing to appeal to these kids doesn't necessarily appeal to me, but it ain't for me. It's for, as you pointed out, for 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and those kids who he wants to sign up as recruits or, or as transfers. So he has managed to tap into what these kids are into, social media, gaining followers, getting people to pay attention to you, getting the eyeballs and attention on you. These kids crave that, and they want that, and Coach Prime gives them a conduit to that. You play great football for me, you're going to get all these things that I get, which is eyeballs, attention, likes, follows, and all that social media stuff. I had this uh, conversation with a, a good friend of yours and, and a guy that you played with in Charles Johnson, and my immediate thought, and uh, he concurred, was a comparison between Coach Prime and the guy you all played for in Bill McCartney, because one of the things that, that Mac pushed, whether it was uncomfortable at the time or not, certainly was faith. He wore his faith and continues to wear his faith on his sleeve, as does Deion Sanders. Uh, did you did you immediately see the parallel? I do immediately see the parallel. Some of the faith aspect uh, from Coach Prime makes me a little uh, uncomfortable when you say things like, you know, God brought me to Boulder. Okay, uh, but let me guess. Your next coaching stop is going to be at a stop where you make more money than you made in Boulder. You're not going to take God's not for some reason God's not going to steer you down to Cal Lutheran where you make dollars <laughs> a year. Your faith, your God is going to steer you to the SEC or to the Big Ten where you're going to make ten million dollars a year. It's interesting that God's goals always kind of line up with your goals, 
as far as what money is concerned. So that's where it gets a little slippery for me. But the, the point I think you're trying to make is both those guys operated from a, a core place of faith and conviction. Um, and Dion, you know, doesn't cuss. Coach Mack didn't cuss uh, rarely on the sideline. So there's, there's a certain core principles that they operate with based on their faith. Um, so I can see that core level, that, 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 that same thread running through both those guys. Now, you saw and were part of, you know, the great turnaround where, where, you know, Colorado became, won a national championship, obviously, one of the elite programs for a number of years um, in the country. How quickly or is it possible now in the Pac-12, can Colorado return to prominence, as I think one of their slogans was a few years back? Uh, can it happen and can it happen rapidly? Uh, the glory days of my time. I, I don't think that's going to be an immediate thing, um, despite the college football rules being what they are now, with the ability to transfer without penalty and all those kinds of things, which have enabled you to rebuild your program and your roster far quicker than you ever could before when those rules were different. Um, the program in Boulder was at such a low point that uh, the, the rebound to being a top ten team is is further away. You know, people have pointed to Lincoln Riley at USC, to Brian Kelly at LSU, and how quickly they were able to kind of turn those programs around. Uh, and and I, while I, I I could say yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that comparison. Let's face it, USC has gotten four and five star recruits out of Southern California every single year for as long as I can remember, whether that equaled production on the field, they were always able to get talent. LSU obviously recruits at an incredibly high level, just like USC does. They get four- and five-star guys out of the state of Louisiana every single year. Um, the Buffs have, had not had four- and five-star guys in almost two decades. So the depth that you need to be able to withstand the Pac-12 schedule, uh, the depth you need to be able to put – talented guys out there on special teams. Uh, the depth you need, you need to be able to withstand a, a run of injuries. I'm not sure if Coach Prime is going, going to be able to bring in enough high school guys and enough transfers in to build up the depth needed to withstand the, the entire gauntlet of a full-season schedule. So this year I'm looking to see, you know, for them to be in a bowl game, which is six wins. I think that's completely doable. But as far as being a top-ten program, that's a little further down the road. Yeah. Well put. Uh, I had a great time, as I'm sure you did, watching the semifinal games uh, in college football. They were epic. I mean, tremendous football games. Uh, the national championship, not so much. I think that the 12-team format uh, is going to be a blast to watch for college football consumers. And I also think, not, not saying you can't have a blowout in the path, to the national championship, but I, th I think it makes it less likely to have a real lopsided national championship uh, game. Would you concur? I uh, respectfully uh, disagree. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think the, the top teams in college football, uh, college football rolls in cycles, and when you are on top or near the top, it becomes just self-repeating. In the NFL, you're the, you're the best team in the league. You pick last in the draft unless you were able to negotiate some trades or something like that. The worst team picks first in the draft. In college football, you win a national championship, chances are you're going to have the, one of the best, if not the best, recruiting class the next year. If you are Georgia, are they going to get less alumni and booster donations this year? No, they're going to get more. They just won a national championship the second in a row. Of your ability for them to go out and hire the best coaches, the best analysts, all those kind of things. When Alabama was winning all the championships, uh, I think they had 12 analysts on that staff. Not coaches, just analysts. And those analysts were either former NFL coaches, former college coaches, or guys with experience. And they paid those guys over $200,000, in some cases over $300,000 a year, just to be analysts. So the difference in those top blue blood programs versus a TCU, like we saw on Monday night, is tremendous. T 
TCU is one of the best programs in the country for as far as a top 20, top 10 kind of ranking, but they cannot compete with Alabama from an analyst perspective, from a coach's salary perspective, uh, the pool for assistant coaches, the training table, the weight staff, all those pieces of the puzzle are better at Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Ohio State, and Michigan. You know, so when someone gets behind Cincinnati a couple years ago, I'm like, are you kidding me? Cincinnati just is not on the same. They can't. They don't deserve to be on the same field because the difference in the funding that goes into those programs is just so massive. Yeah, I, I have argued that in the past that you're, you're talking about uh, a tier of half a dozen teams, maybe, and you you listed them. We all know who they are, and then the, then there's a next grouping. It's not there's nothing wrong with being in that next grouping, but it does make it uh, unlikely that, especially in a 12 game format, that they're going to get all the way through to the championship game. That that was my argument that it may ultimately be you know. Georgia, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, Alabama, uh, Michigan, but it's it's less likely that a TCU can win three football games to get to a national championship. It'll be fun, though, I think, in the process because you will have upsets. We all love March Madness because of the Cinderella uh, factor, but I, I think the 12-team format will eliminate 65-7. to 7. Uh, Hopefully that is the case, particularly in the national championship game, but the the two best teams wind up there who are prepared to, you know, put something competitive on the field. Um, yeah, the, 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 and it's always, again, you know, the, the cycles of college football. Uh, Alabama, you know, is that top. And then eventually the recruiting message of Nick Saban's getting old, therefore recruits choose to go to Georgia. Then Georgia is up top for a while. And at some point, Tennessee, you know, gets a chance to have their reign at the top, or they have four or five years where they're keeping it all together until the recruiting message there gets a little stale and kids decide to go some other place that's cooler or more of an upcomer. But that's that, that, that process. But in that process, it's very difficult for a Cincinnati or a TCU or a, a UCF who was hot a couple of years back to keep in that conversation for a long period of time because of their lack of resources. Yeah. Hey, hey, Chad, real quick, because it, it, you know, it was 30 years ago or so when you were you know, coming out of uh, Pasadena. Did any of the SEC schools reach out? Did they hold the allure that certainly they would today? No. I mean, as a California kid, um, I grew up wanting to play Pac-12, well, back, back then, Pac-10 football. Right. Um, and so once you got too far past Texas and Nebraska, um, I recognize that there was an incredible tradition out there, um, but Alabama and Auburn and Mississippi and Mississippi State, they didn't come out to California and do much recruiting. Um, now recruiting is a nationwide game. Um, these kids grow up watching all these teams on, on TV. Um, the TV package has, has allowed all these different schools and conferences to penetrate the homes of America. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the allure in some ways, the, the, the overall recruiting picture is more complicated because it has grown from a very regional thing to now a very national thing. All right, two quick ones. I'll let you fly. Um, thank goodness uh, DeMar Hamlin is, is doing much better today as we tape this. Uh, he was released from a Buffalo area hospital to continue his rehabilitation at home and and uh, um, I, I would imagine at the Bills facility as well from what I've Red, in your long football career, high school, uh, college in Boulder, um, way more than a decade in the National Football League, did you ever allow serious injury to enter your mind, or as a player, do you just have to block that out because you can't perform if you're thinking about getting hurt? Uh, I think everybody who plays football past high school recognizes that the job is dangerous. But not, dangerous is one thing. Deadly is, is quite another. So you walk onto the field with this uh, Superman thought in your head. Because even Superman can get banged up. But Superman doesn't die. You know, no one can actually, you know, mortally wound Superman. Um, so this Superman perspective that you have, for me, that, that bubble was, was, was popped. And it, it's popped every 10 or 15 years when something really serious like this happens. Um, and you're forced to kind of face the, the, the demons, uh, I suppose, of the game and your own ability to shut off your brain to part of that. Um, I was taken off the field in an ambulance, you know, on a stretcher. 
you know, with my limbs strapped down and my and my helmet taped down to where, where I couldn't move. Um, so that was hard for, you know, my, my wife. That was in year uh, six for me. So for nine more years after that, every game gave her nausea and headaches just because she was so worried about me. And every single play, you know, she's looking to see me get up on the field. So while I was still able to maintain my Superman perspective, uh, you know, my wife lost it seeing me taken off the field in the ambulance. And so I can imagine there's some football fans who kind of feel similar to my wife right now. Um, but there's players who have to go out and play the most important game of the season coming up this weekend for them, the first game of the playoffs. And they've got to find a way to compartmentalize that and lock those feelings away for the next month if they want to be successful and go out there and win a, a championship. I love how you articulated that because it, it, it's not just your, you being out there. And I think anybody who's a parent can relate to, um, you know, worrying about their kids when they when they you know, partake, especially in a, a violent sport like football, but you're typically not concerned about, you know, life or death. And that was that was changed for many people or they got a reminder of such uh, more than a week ago when DeMar Hamlin went down as he did. All right. I said I was going to circle back to uh, to snakes because I have this fascination as so many people do, but it's from afar. Your your best python anaconda hunting story what do you got okay uh so uh, i was on a trip to indonesia and um indonesia's got ten thousand islands as they say and so before we went on the trip uh the guy who i was going on the trip with um he imports reptiles from from indonesia and so we looked at all the different islands and all the different you know naturalist stories from the 1800s and the 1700s and all the field guides and we decided we were going to go to the island of halamahera uh, and to see what was there. And so when you go to these islands, um, obviously we don't speak Indonesian, but hey, we got, this was back before cell phones, so we had a, a stack of photos. So we would go to uh, the, the local town and let people know that we were looking for reptiles, and we would show them photos of reptiles that were from nearby islands. Hey, you, you see these snakes? You see these? And everyone would, you know, they, they all, they're very friendly, and they want to please you. So they would say, oh, yes, yes, I see those. Okay, but then you ask more questions. You see them in trees, you see them on the water, and you could kind of quickly figure out um, whether they were telling the truth or not. The next step after that is kind of going to, there's usually a local guy who's the skin guy who sells lizard skins and snake skins and all that. So we went to the local skin guy, and we're looking through this giant pile of skins that he has, and we're flipping through, and we see uh, reticulated pythons, which is one of the longest species of python on the planet. Um, and they're all throughout Southeast Asia. So we're flipping through, flipping through, flipping through. Huh, that's a weird skin. That doesn't look anything like a reticulated python skin. And there's, there are, you know, babies that are born or that end up having odd or different patterns, so we kind of just shrug that one off. But as we're looking through, well, there's another one, and it looks exactly the same. And now there's a third one. So we pull these skins out. We go over to the guy. We say, you know, where does this python live? It lives in the cave on the other side of the island, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So we're gonna, now we're going to go see if we can find some of these pythons. Um, we hire a local guide to take us there. There's no roads to get to these caves. You have to walk. And pythons are nocturnal, so we decided to do this at night. Um, and we decide we're going to bring a chicken. Because, you know, pythons eat birds, so let's bring a chicken and some bait. Maybe we can leave this chicken in the cave. It'll eat the chicken. We come back the next day, the python will still be there. Uh, so we're walking for a couple of hours, and we get to this river. And it's at night in Indonesia. And earlier in the day, when we were walking around, we saw some crocodiles. Um, so uh, we get to this river, and I'm like, yo, fellas, you know, I'm down to see these pythons, and I and I want to do all this, but we're going to cross a river at night in Indonesia, you know, not too far from where we saw crocodiles earlier in the day, and I got a chicken in my hand. Are you kidding me? Well, come on, man. This is crazy. <laughs> so our translator says this to our guide, and our guide says, I am so relieved. Uh, I have been scared the entire time. I thought I was with the great python hunters from America. Um, I'm so happy to hear that you guys are afraid, too. 
So, you know, we stand at the edge of the river, and it's kind of flowing kind of quickly, and we got our flashlights, but we really can't see to the other side. And so we're throwing rocks to trying to hear, you know, how deep it is in the river. And I'm just like, you know, seriously, let's just, let's just go back and have a couple of beers, and we'll just figure this out in daylight hours. So uh, wiser minds prevailed. We did not try to cross the river at night. We came back the next day, crossed the river. It was too big to cross at night um, because by the time we got in and the flow of the river took us a couple hundred yards downstream by the time we were able to get out of the river. Um, we did go to the cave. We saw a bunch of snake skins and all that, um, but we did not see any live snakes. And the day we were to leave Holland Mahara and get on the ferry and go to the next island, uh, the, the skin guy's assistant comes running to our hotel and says they, they caught a live species of this python. It ends up being a new species of python to Western science. Uh, we, we end up, the popular name is the Holomahera scrub python. Uh, one of the guys I was on the trip with is a naturalist of sorts, and he ended up documenting the species for Western science. He named it after his wife. His wife is uh, Tracy Barker, so it's uh, Python amethystinae tracii, named after his wife. So it's part of the amethystine python group that are all over Southeast Asia and the northern part of Australia. And so I discovered, was on a trip to help discover a new species of python. And now here, 20 years later after that trip, I was able to get uh, two males and two females in the last year and a half for my personal python collection. And I am trying to be the first person uh, in the United States to reproduce this species of python in captivity. Wow. So w when you say that, do you have them at your your shop or are these in the brown household somewhere? These are, uh, they stay at my office. I've got a, an office for my reptile shipping company, and one of the offices is devoted to my animal collection. Some of the animals are to help my customer service staff know what the, my customers are putting into boxes, how right. big it is, what kind of box it can go to, all that kind of stuff. And some of the animals are part of my personal collection. These uh, uh, Mahara scrub pythons, as, as they are commonly called, are part of my personal collection. And I've got uh, an older pair um, that are starting to get to adult size that I'll probably try to breed next year. Uh, my younger pair are still about two or three years away. Chad, how big quickly do these become? Uh, these will probably mature, uh, become sexually mature about seven or eight feet. Uh, eventual maximum adult size will probably be somewhere between 12 and 14 feet. Um, they're a thinner-bodied, very athletic species of python that is equally uh, adept in water, in trees, and on land. Yeah, we call them the outside linebackers of, of pythons, if I recollect. Uh, there you go. You are correct with that. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, Chad, this was comforting, this last tale of yours for me, because I always thought, you know, Chad, you know, great guy, bright guy, was a hell of a player, but, you know, he's a little bit off his rocker. Um, but the fact that you didn't cross at midnight this um, river in the middle of the jungle with crocodiles and pythons, you know, again, I, I'm encouraged that, yes, the, the chairlift is going to the top of the mountain or thereabouts. Uh, outside of football, as an outside linebacker, I try to practice the, the phrase of discretion is the better part of valor. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not afraid of too many snakes and reptiles, but crocodiles, at night in Indonesia in a flowing river, they've got the advantage. You know, Sun Tzu says, you know, don't don't fight when your opponent has the advantage. Don't fight uphill. So uh, I, I'm taking the lessons of a great general like Sun Tzu and putting those into action in my reptile life. Well, here's one of the many differences between me and you is the two beers that you referenced that you said, hey, let's go back and have a couple of beers. I would never have left the uh, set establishment <laughs> that had the beers to go on that trek at midnight. <laughs> well, you know, there has to be some discomfort in uh, the process of discovery. So to leave the beers behind and, and do the walk, I was willing to do, just unwilling to cross that river because, as I said, Discretion is the better part of valor. Chad, you are a fascinating man, a renaissance man. I always enjoy our conversations. You're also a, a media conglomerate. I know you probably got uh, 
you know, six more things on the uh, on the sports entertainment uh, calendar today. So I'll let you go with that uh, with that great Python story from uh, Indonesia. Uh, it's great catching up, man. Great. Uh, thanks for having me on. I uh, always enjoy being on with you and uh, catching up and all that stuff. And, yes, it's one of my favorite things to tell a few tales from the uh, reptile world. So thanks for that opportunity as well, my friend. No, it's fa- it, honestly, it's fascinating. I think most people find it fascinating because they would not partake on their own. Um, but um, good good stuff. Uh, Chad, stay well and uh and enjoy uh 2023 and continued success my friend all right thank you See you later, how about that story indonesia crossing a river in the middle of the night hunting pythons no thank you but i i have to tell you i i'm probably like you in this regard we all have this snake phobia most of us do other than chad but when i go to the zoo I always want to check out the snakes because I know there's a big barrier between, you know, me and the snakes, but I, there's something about them, right? You, you have a fear of them, but you want to you want to check them out. I remember being in Thailand and I went to a couple of different snake shows. And I was traveling with a buddy of mine who's in television still, Kenny Miller. And we're over in, in Thailand, and we went to one, and we learned a lot about pythons, and, you know, man, they scare the dickens out of you. And then we went to this one snake show, and it's kind of, it was in this, like, open-air semi-circle where there was three rows. I mean, it, it was pretty close, where, where there was a kind of a middle area where the snake expert was, and he had this big canvas bag of some kind and there were snakes in there and he would take one out one by one and describe the snake and everything and there was he literally was only you know 10 feet from people in the lower seating area and then there was you know the next seating area was just one row above it and then there was a third row so it was just three rows so the furthest away you could be is like 20 feet and Kenny and I were in the top row. I'm like, I'm not getting in the bottom row. I'm not getting that close. And so this guy was taking out different snakes and he'd describe them. You know, this is a such and such snake. And then while he's describing, the snake's like crawling around on that area next to him. Um, If it decided to crawl forward, it would be like with the people. There's only probably like 50 people there watching this snake show. And so at one point, he takes out this snake and he says this is a jumping snake and you know he he takes it out and it's kind of you know lying around there and all of a sudden he takes it and he throws it into the crowd i couldn't believe that i mean this this you know again we're in thailand so i guess rules are different throws it in the crowd people jump like crazy i went over the back and um, he starts laughing. He goes and gets the snake, puts it back in the bag, and he starts laughing. He said, I said it's a jumping snake. I did not say it was poisonous, as if that <laughs> should be some relief <laughs> to everyone. Oh, I'll never forget that. Anyhow, um, Chad loves his snakes. He loves his exotic uh, pets, and um, I love hearing stories about them from afar so again thanks to chad for jumping on i said uh earlier on i was going to do super bowl predictions and you know it's easy or easier when you only have two teams left but we have this big tournament that's starting this weekend so uh without breaking everything down because i find that boring quite frankly the nfc to me is going to come down to the 49ers with a third string quarterback who is mr irrelevant brock purdy but he's playing great former iowa state quarterback they have so many weapons as you know uh christian mccaffrey debo samuels healthy again george kittle's playing well i like san francisco a lot but the number one seed is philadelphia jalen hurts appears to be healthy or healthier they have a great defense and it has to go through philly so i'm going to take philly and i was going back and forth on this but i gonna take philly to represent the nfc and the afc i think that's going to be fascinating because 
we know the Buffalo story, not, not only because of DeMar Hamlin, but they're really good. I don't think they're as good on defense as they were a year ago. They're missing the former Bronco, naturally, Von Miller. They're going to be a tough out. It's going to go through Kansas City. I don't need to tell you about how wonderful Kansas City can be, especially in the postseason with Patrick Mahomes, etc. But my team that I think comes out of the AFC is Cincinnati, which started out up and down, and then they found their mojo, and they've been as good as anyone the last two months of the season, and they were in the Super Bowl, as we all know, last year. I say they go back, and I think it will be a Cincinnati-Philadelphia Super Bowl, and I'm going to take the Bengals to win it. So there you go. You heard it here first. Bengals over the Eagles in the Super Bowl. One quick note on our avalanche as we depart. I went to the Avs um, with, uh, with Zach, one of my boys, on Tuesday when they played Florida. Miserable first period. Not much better in the second. They were down 4-1 to one after two. And then they did avalanche things. And somehow in a flurry, they score three goals. Really four goals. But one there was a, a goal that tied it that was ruled properly offside, unfortunately. And then literally like seconds later, they get the equalizer. So it's 4-4. And you're thinking, my God, they got three goals in the third period. They're going to come back and at the very least, they're going to get a point out of this, but they're going to find a way to get two points out of this. They're going to get it to overtime. They're going to, you know, they're going to win in overtime. And a real questionable interference uh, penalty was called on, uh, I think it was on Miko Rantanen. And the Avalanche give up second power play goal of the game. They lose five to four. Uh, as we tape, they've lost six out of seven. If the playoffs, that old line, if the playoffs were to start today, the defending Stanley Cup champion, Colorado Avalanche, would not be part of it. This has somewhat followed a script that I said at the very beginning of the year. When you win a cup, it's such an arduous and draining process that. It's not at all surprising that you start slow. And I felt like the first few months, especially with Landeskog out, and then there was a multitude of injuries, I said it at the start of the year. I said, you know, the Avalanche will be solid but not great the first half of the year, and then they'll kind of kick it into gear in the final couple of months to get ready for another run. And I still believe that to be true. But they got to start kicking it into gear, even without Landeskog, uh, even without uh, Nachuskin, uh, even right now without Bo Byram. They got to start kicking it in. It's time. They've hit hopefully the depths of the season, having lost six out of seven. But now's the time. And then when Landeskog returns and Byram and Nachuskin, and hopefully they're able to stay healthy. And I still think. You know, the Avalanche are going to pull off a deal, as is their history, that they will be in a position, probably not the one seed, but they'll be in a position uh, to defend their cup. But lately, it has not been good. Lately, it's been tough to watch. That'll do it for this edition. Big thanks again to Chad Brown for jumping on. Uh, Thanks to all of you. Thanks to the good folks at uh, Mile High Sports as well. Check out their podcast, their array of podcasts. And uh, we'll do it again in seven days, as I say every week. Stay safe. Stay well, everybody. Talk to you soon.